This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. When the Zoomer squad joined Fight Back on Monday, the conversation was all about the various party platforms in the current Ontario election campaign and how well aligned they are with the CARP 5. These are the five priority issues important to members of the Zoomers advocacy group CARP, A New Vision of Aging. In order, they are fund better home care, transform long-term care, drastically cut health care wait times, make vaccines more accessible, and fund fitness for seniors. How does the CARP 5 stack up against the various party platforms? Libby asked this question of Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief policy and chief operating officer. Well, they've, uh, they're all making uh, promises right, left, and center, no different than we've seen before with what happens after the election that'll, that'll really uh, count. But a couple of interesting things uh, for uh, CARB. One is that uh, uh, only the Conservative Party seems to have recognized that although health care issues are a top priority and concern, and certainly for uh, CARP, they are. People are really worried about their financial stability, and we haven't seen from the li- Liberals or the NDP a lot about that, almost to the point that uh, maybe we should have put that in our top uh, five, because all the surveys that we do at CARP and the surveys that we've seen from, from other organizations show that financial concern, whether or not they're going to uh, be able to have enough money to afford to keep living these days is becoming huge with people from gas prices to rising uh, food costs. And none of the parties really seem to have recognized that yet. And I think this could be uh, a major uh, point as we get closer to Election Day. Well, you know, funny you should mention that just a few minutes before air, I got a press release from the PCs and they are going to increase the Ontario Disability Support Program by 5%. That's the promise. There's been a lot of uh, lobbying for that. Uh, it's obviously not necessarily age-dependent. Uh, David, does that answer any of those questions for you? For that group, and I think he's also said he's indexing it to inflation yeah. going forward. So there's some recognition that costs are going up. I think that the problem here that all three parties are facing, and I completely agree with Bill on what the concern is, the problem is that if I'm a provincial government and I don't control the Bank of Canada uh, interest rates and I don't control the money supply, I'm a little bit more constrained with, you know, what I can do. But the Liberals today came out with rent control, which is already there, but in a two-tier way. So there's there's some paying attention to we've got to get our costs down. But it still is, in as I can see, a very much of a promise-related, spending-related 
here we go into an election. I'm going to do these things at this this expenditure. And I don't think there's a um, an appetite between now and June the 2nd to say, I'm not going to promise you anything, but we're going to lower your cost of living. I don't think any of them dare do that uh, as opposed to giving away more goodies. Peter, what's your take on how the parties stack up on home care? Home care is, is, is a top priority for each of the parties. And this hasn't been the case in past elections that I can remember. And it's finally uh, landed at the top of the agenda of all three parties. So that that's a really good sign. And, and it sort of suggests that there's going to be movement on it. And in terms of long-term care, two of the parties, the Liberals and the NDP, say they want to end the for-profit element of uh, of long-term care. So um, they've staked a, a much different approach than the Conservatives. And um, I, I'm, I'm a bit leery about, you know, abandoning for-profit long-term care just because, um, you know, you know I, the government just doesn't have the money, I don't think, to build however many new beds it needs. And it's going to rely on partnerships in the private sector. And I, I think it's a bit naive to think that we can just cancel the... Um, you know, for-profit long-term care and, and think that that's going to solve the problem. So, so it's a different approach by the Liberals and NDP versus the Conservatives, but uh, it looks like they're taking the, those two issues seriously anyway. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief policy and chief operating officer, Fightback's Monday Zoomer squad. This is Zoomer Radio's best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. The week also began with positive reaction to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's surprise visit to Kiev on Sunday. Trudeau, along with Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, reopened the Canadian embassy in Ukraine's capital. And the PM also promised more weapons and other assistance in a meeting with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, who lauded what he called a special relationship between our two nations. The timing was not a coincidence. It came the day before Victory Day, a huge holiday in Russia meant to mark that country's victory over the Nazis in World War II. Many in the West feared Vladimir Putin would use the occasion to annex more of Ukraine or announce a general mobilization, neither of which happened. And in fact, observers report the parade was smaller than usual with an air display canceled at the last minute. Joining Fight Back to discuss the latest developments, Phil Vasilevsky, a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Fortin Policy Research Institute, Dr. Paul Good, Macmillan Chair in Russian Studies at Carleton University, but first, Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto Branch, with reaction to Justin Trudeau's visit to Kiev. It is exactly what Ukraine needs at this point, so obviously the community is, is very happy and very encouraged and, and actually thankful, thankful to the Canadian government uh, for the vast amount of aid they actually announced. Um, we know without all this critical support, um, this war is going to um, grind Ukraine down both physically, uh, emotionally, uh, but even economically. Russia's trying everything in its power. Uh, now that they know they can't win the war, it's obvious that they can't. 
But what they can do is try to destroy Ukraine and then pick up the pieces maybe when everything, when there's really nothing left. So uh, thank you to Canada, U.S., and all the other countries that are stepping up to help right now. Dr. Paul, good. A lot of people were expecting that Victory Day would bring things that are a lot worse. What's your take on why that did not happen? There was a lot of speculation in part because of the course of the war, because things were obviously not going in the way that Russia had planned, that the fact that Victory Day is so significant in Russia, the expectation was that in some way, shape, or form, that would have to be addressed. And one way might be finally escalating to a full mass mobilization for the war effort. I I never really thought that was likely, and in part because to the extent that surveys are reliable coming out of Russia, really only about 1% of the population was actually worried about a mass call-up. And I think that tells us something very essential, which is that for most people, most ordinary Russians, the war is actually a very distant experience. It's not something that people keenly feel themselves. Um, And actually calling for a mass mobilization in the midst of the Victory Day celebration would have been a real shock to the system. Um, and perhaps even more of an admission of defeat than not mobilizing the, uh, the masses. So uh, not entirely unexpected, I think, for people who follow Russia closely. Phil Vasilevsky, were you expecting more? Uh, there was also talk that they might just announce an annexation. And uh, why do you think the parade was actually smaller than a lot of people expected? Well, getting to the parade, probably the small number was because of the limited amount of uh, forces that they could bring together uh, in order to have a parade. Then we had three dogs that didn't bark in this speech. One was there was no declaration of war. Two, there was no announcement of a massive mobilization of Russian society to support it. And three, there was no real mention of any war aims, either repetition of the original aims that Putin laid out on February 24th for, quote-unquote, denazification and demilitarization, um, but also nothing regarding what Putin wants to accomplish with this still, as it's called, special military operation. Peter Storin, what more would you like to see our government do? Well, they, they've allocated funds. Uh, we know the, uh, a couple weeks ago already they had the $500 million for military aid. Unfortunately, Canada doesn't have necessarily that much military aid that could be useful. Uh, to Ukraine, but the idea was to mobilize funds and actually purchase uh, weaponry in other parts of the world. Uh, we know the Ukrainians are using old Soviet weapons uh, like the T-72 tanks and others. Poland has transferred and such. So uh, what what Canada could be doing is moving on that file as quickly as possible. They need those weapons now. They need them yesterday. And uh, that's the only way, that's the only way this conflict will end. It will end when one side or the other wins militarily. And the whole world has made the decision, mostly, they want Ukraine to win this battle because the alternative is is horrific. Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. Phil Vasilevsky, a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And Dr. Paul Good, Macmillan Chair in Russian Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, too many Canadians are still waiting too long for elective surgeries. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There is good news and bad news when it comes to wait times for some surgeries. Wait times have been improving since the early days of the pandemic, and the system is reasonably on track for emergency and cancer surgeries. But there are still longer wait times for elective surgeries, and we use that word elective advisedly because if you're in pain and unable to do your normal activities while waiting for a joint replacement, it's not really an optional procedure that can wait without negatively impacting quality of life. And most of these delays are in joint replacement and cataract surgery. According to data from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, about 600,000 fewer surgeries were performed across Canada since the beginning of the pandemic, with joint replacements and cataract surgeries accounting for about 25% of the total reduction in surgeries. Tracy Johnson is Director of Health System Analysis and Emerging Issues at Chi-High, Dr. Joel Finkelstein is an orthopedic surgeon at Sunnybrook Hospital, and Dr. Kevin Smith is CEO of the University Health Network. They joined Libby to talk about the state of wait times for surgeries. We really prioritized um, life-threatening illness, and I'm not in any way demeaning uh, life-altering illness like like uh, joint replacement. Our, our orthopedic colleague, I'm sure, will comment on that. But clearly, we saw things like radiation therapies, hip fractures, uh, other serious operations uh, done at reasonably high levels and very close to uh, the expected or appropriate lengths of, of distance from diagnosis. I think what I'm a bit more concerned about as well is what about the screening programs that weren't as active or weren't able to be as active? The other piece I think we also have to recognize, and the Kaihai data was excellent in pointing this out in the study, that in the earliest of waves, not only was it our attention on treating COVID patients, but the fear of patients to come to hospital. And we've seen in a number of areas like cardiac illness and stroke and, and other neurological presentations that people avoided hospital and as a result may have seen a worse outcome. They were frightened to get this illness and thought that by coming to hospital, they might have exposed themselves to it. Completely untrue, but um, in the middle of a pandemic, fear is a, a huge motivator that we have to uh, recognize and work around. Dr. Finkelstein, how does that play out for you with your patients? And, and do you have a backlog of people who just want to get in to see you? We already have a capacity issue in our healthcare system, so you can imagine that when with COVID, it created a you know, bigger problems for us with uh, wait times and getting patients in. And and I I like the term life-altering illness. And the whole thing didn't allow us to, you know, get these patients, you know, into surgery in the recommended, you know, period of time. So this has created uh, an overall health concern. Uh, It affected was quality of life. And now we are trying to pick up that backlog. And the wait list has gone up. And I, I'm a, a spine surgeon, not a total joint surgeon, but I'm very familiar with our, our total joint program. And we are, we are working hard at getting more ORs running. And our limitation now is 
is staffing nurses and anesthetists to run the room. So even though we do want to get uh, on top of the wait list to try to get back to the 70% uh, patients done within six months, we are having continued problems from the uh, pandemic in that we do have, we did have attrition of uh, staff and this continues to be a problem and uh, hopefully we will uh, catch up in the uh, not too distant future, but it will take um, human resource and, uh, and financial resource. Tracy Johnson, in terms of the cataracts, they were the next most delays. What, what, did you, what do you want to tell us about that? So cataracts have rebounded. We were at about, they're about the same as they were pre-pandemic now. They're at about 60%. Cataracts are a little bit easier. They're one of those surgeries that are um, procedures that tend to be a bit easier to um, gear up for because they can be done in the clinic. You can do an average of 12-ish, 11, 12 a day. Um, they don't require an operating room and the same number of health human resources as Kevin was going to say. Dr. Smith, do you have a handle on the numbers of people who are backlogged or waiting for more Mm -hmm. than six months? We certainly, over the life of the uh, pandemic, have looked at around five to 6,000 cases. We've caught up on a a couple of thousand of those. So we're still at about 4,000 procedures, not only surgical, but across the disciplines, surgery being uh, a highlight amongst them. You know what? At the end of the day, this really does come back to a health human resource issue that we don't have or haven't had adequate numbers, particularly of nursing call weeks, to be able to do the catch-up as well as the regular work that's required. And it isn't a physical plant limitation. It's a people limitation. Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network, Tracy Johnson, Director of Health System Analysis and Emerging Issues at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and Dr. Joel Finkelstein, orthopedic surgeon at Toronto's Sunnybrook Hospital. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back is heard during the lunch hour. So on Wednesday... We embrace the so-called eat-what-you-want day with the idea to give ourselves permission to indulge in whatever foods we love and let go of diets, discipline, and restraint for one day. And it was on Tuesday we learned the prestigious Michelin Guide is coming to Toronto, which is great news for restaurants and tourism in general as the hospitality sector continues to recover from the pandemic. Libby was joined by a panel of foodies to discuss this exciting development. Rose Reisman is a nutritionist, author, and owner of Rose Reisman Catering. Chef Carl Heinrich is the owner of Richmond Station, and Chef Frank Parhisgar is the owner of FK. This is, I think, great uh, great news for our industry. It's uh, really exciting, but at the same time, there's a lot of uh, preparation and a uh, bit of a education that requires behind the scenes. For one thing, is who's inspecting it? Is it going to be a local inspector or is it a foreign inspector? How much is the application cost? And already we already have a little bit of trouble with shortage of staff and cost of living has gone higher and ingredients have gone higher. So I'm not really sure how many restaurants can afford to go for their stars, but the ones that do, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's such an exciting news, not just for our food 
industry as well, but tourism itself and other parts of Ontario are wine regions or incredible ingredients that we have across this province in this country. Carl Heinrich, I was listening to a reaction from a very well-respected food critic, Corey Mintz, and he was saying the only way to consistently put out that high quality of food and presentation is to abuse your staff. And I know that you make a point of treating your staff very well and paying them properly. I mean, I read Corey's book and I know Corey well, and uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree there. I think that we've come a long ways, and I think that certainly Michelin is going to push standards here. But employees being treated properly and, frankly, fairly and paid fairly is coming from employees, and it, it's, it's coming from customers now. Customers want to spend their money at restaurants that are treating their employees fairly, and, fairly, and, and employees want to work at restaurants that are treating their employees fairly. Um, so whether or not you're shooting for the stars, I, I don't think that's going to make a difference because uh, if you can't hire staff because you abuse them, then you're not going to get any stars. Rose, yeah. does having this emphasis on fine dining, does that help or hurt with nutrition? Um, you know, you can really do very clean, fresh food in, in, in these restaurants, for sure. I mean, you know, we, we tend to see tons of, you know, fat and, and, you know, organ meats used as well. But I think that they work so well with making adjustments for you. And I think this is not a daily occurrence. So it's not like eat what you want. It, you're, you're doing it. You're not doing this more than once or twice a year. So I think on those nights, you have to know yourself and say, you know what, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, Health is still, you know, apparent to me. I, I might want fish versus red meat, but I think you can make exceptions when you dine like this. Carl, what would you, if if you would go for the star and get a star, what kind of a difference would it make to your business, do you think? For our team here and for, for myself and for our management team particularly, I don't, I don't think we're going to be shooting for any stars. I mean, if, if Michelin comes to town and says Richmond Station, we love what you're doing. We want to reward you with a star. Then, you know, we'll, we'll accept it happily, obviously. If we're not in the guide, I'm sure there'll be a number of our staff that are disappointed. But I, I'm not looking to invest any money to make our dining room better and our product more expensive so that we can get stars. I think that would, um, you know, just to the, the previous point there, I think that would make our restaurant too expensive for a lot of our friends and a lot of our family. I mean, I've always wanted to have a restaurant that my mother could come and eat at any day of the week. And and I've been to those really beautiful, really expensive, incredibly fancy restaurants where I spend all the money that I have. And like <laughs> you said, you do that maybe once in a lifetime or once right. in a year. Right. Um, but uh, that's not Richmond Station. And like I said, if, if we get if we get rewarded with a star or, or even a nod, then then we happily accept it. Chef Carl Heinrich, owner of Richmond Station. Rose Reisman, nutritionist, author and owner of Rose Reisman Catering. And Chef Frank Parhisgar is the owner of FK. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Bill in Toronto phoned about telecommunications in Canada. They opened up the landline service for competition. I don't know what it was, like 15 years ago. And AT&T and Sprint and all the big players from the States came in. There were Canadian startups. And it was an epic failure. They all invested tons of money. They were here for a few years. And they basically died out. So I wonder, given the nature of the huge country we've got, where you have to join, go through vast swaths of land where they're making zero money and they've got to maintain lines and services. Uh, if you can actually even be competitive in Canada, if it's going to attract anybody else to want to come in and do it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Angelo in Toronto, who phoned about surgery he's been waiting on through the pandemic. Maybe I've been waiting over a year and a half for a knee replacement. Uh, last year, around October, November, I went back to see my family doctor, and he said that he called the hospital, and they said they lost all my information. So he had to send wow. the information back in again. You know, and I'm still waiting. I don't blame the doctor, please, or the nurse. God bless them. They did a great, great job. You know, they're all overworked. But I blame our leaders because we have no government. We have tax collectors. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.